beef, maybe it shouldn't be what's for dinner. Welcome to Way Over Our Heads. It's a weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. Kenny, how you doing? I am doing well. I'm a little sleepy. How are you, Jim? <laughs> I'm doing well. We're going to talk about why you're sleepy <laughs> yeah. in just a little bit. This is a uh, Sunday afternoon. We're recording on the banks of Minnehaha Creek in South Minneapolis. And um, a little bit later on in the show, we want to get very serious and talk about a report that came out this past week, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And basically, the report says... We need to dramatically change the food we eat as well as the way it's grown and produced. And uh, we'll we'll chat about that more. But first of all, Kenny, so you were at a music festival this weekend. Correct. Yes. I was at the uh, Square Lake. It's kind of a music and film festival. It's small. It's on a farm uh, that's about, I don't know, a half mile or so south of of Square Lake. So that's Washington County. It's it's real beautiful. They, They keep the attendance... Limited, and I am there as sort of a volunteer weather observer, um, and it's, it's really interesting because, well, Jim, why on earth would a would a small festival or any festival need a weather observer? Well, let's talk about that. I mean, yes, yeah, small festivals or large venues like uh, the Twins game, for example, the Twins Stadium. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, to be clear, I would have gone to this festival anyway. I'm actually right. buy a ticket each year. But the, because uh, it's usually local music, uh, great local music, and a pretty good assortment of film, and it's just, the size is really nice. Um, yeah, so pretty much every, you know, outdoor activity that is organized in some way and has some sort of official capacity really needs to kind of mind all the things that can go wrong. And when you're, and I can't speak to all of the ins and outs of how, of everything that festivals require, but just imagine you've got vendors and you've got bands and these, uh, you've got basic different entities that need to get paid. And so what happens if, you know, if it rains and nobody shows up, right. but the, the, the vendors don't get any money and, uh, you know, you want to be able to pay the bands. So, right. and uh, worst case scenario too, people are there, and something does happen that requires either an evacuation or the seeking of shelter. Yeah. So, so there's sort of different levels of right. protection that you can buy, and you know, without slamming the insurance industry, you know, the, the insurance industry is quite <laughs> eager to make customers out of festivals and you know get them to buy some product and the the general deal is whatever you buy um, if the weather hits some sort of threshold you'll get a return on that investment basically and so for the most basic type of protection that festivals seem to get is just for rainfall you get rained out and so there's a certain precipitation threshold that you can hit and uh, if you hit that threshold the insurance company without really doing much else sort of assumes okay you couldn't have sold all the tickets or you couldn't have paid all the vendors or the vendors must have lost some money. So here's here's um, a check. And the reason you'd want a weather observer there is especially before there was technology. There are some new solutions that kind of work around this. But before technology, what did you have to go on? You had to go on the, the word of the you either had to have an insurance rep at the festival or you had to go on the word of the festival hosts. And usually what insurance companies would do is they would just take the nearest first order weather station, which means kind of a big, serious weather station. So it could be the Twin Cities International Airport. 
And they would use that as a reference. Well, if it didn't rain in the twin, at the Twin Cities airport, they would say, well, you're full of it and we're not, we're not going to pay you. Uh, as you know, Jim, from the last couple times we've talked, we actually do get these micro thunderstorms right. and uh, micro even rain showers that can affect one area and not another. And it's kind of absurd to think that you have to refer back to the airport. Uh, so if you're 20 miles away, what's often more handy is to just have someone who's an official observer bring a uh, official rain gauge, kind of like the sort you have in your backyard, right? Uh, and and just take measurements there and take pictures and, and document it. But there are also solutions now with data mining and some of the automated weather stations and also radar. There are some companies that, that provide... Uh, estimates of how much rain fell. So I was sort of there as a, I would say, a backup plan. But uh, yeah, it's I've been doing this in some other festivals for several years. It's, um, it's kind of a nice way to volunteer and uh, help people, you know, help people have success with their, uh, with their outdoor activities. And we should mention that the weather was rather benign for the festival this past weekend and pretty benign here in the Twin Cities, with the exception of some heavy rain on Saturday. Oh, yeah, no, it was terrible, though, for a lot of people. I mean, it rained, <laughs> right, right. It rained on and off all day. And it somehow, uh, somewhat miraculously, a fairly potent thunderstorm just missed us. Sort of probably wow. went right between South Minneapolis and where the festival was. So this one had been picked up by the airport or by... Uh, you know, certain observations. But in the area right around Highway 36 and Maplewood and North St. Paul, they got almost an inch of rain. Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of okay. lightning and thunder. Uh, so did that shut things down temporarily? Did people or No, a lot of festivals or? will have lightning rules, and that's really smart. Anyone doing outdoor activities should have lightning rules. If you hear thunder, you got to suspend outdoor activities for one half hour. And uh, this is true whether you're refing a game or running a festival. But usually you can handle some amount of just rain. If it's not pouring, right. you know, if it's not a right. tropical downpour, you can usually handle some amount of rain. And that's kind of what we had yesterday. It rained moderately on and off <laughs> for several hours. Yes. Um, but yeah, all things considered, it was benign compared to... Compared what, to what happened in southwestern Minnesota, extreme right. southwestern Minnesota. I imagine you had an eye on that, although it never appeared that was necessarily going to come our, our way, correct? Yeah, it, the, there was a little more warm air in far southern Minnesota and a little more instability, and it wasn't too dissimilar from the, the kind of setup that we were expecting a couple Sundays ago when we had those uh, kind of odd... Um, overcast tornadoes out by one by Hutchinson and one in Washington County near Scandia. Uh, it's kind of a similar setup, but it was a little bit more unstable in far southern and um, south central Minnesota and southwest Minnesota where a little bit of sunshine came out, temperatures got a little bit higher, there was a little more humidity. And so if there was going to be that kind of uh, severe weather, it was most likely in that area. And then there was also some uh, intense activity kind of later in the evening into Wisconsin. But most, most of Minnesota just saw uh, either isolated thunderstorms or these uh, occasional kind of moderate rain uh, showers, I guess you'd call it. And the tornadoes that were spun up were basically weak tornadoes, correct? Yeah, it doesn't sound like, I mean, we'll have to wait for official damage survey, but there weren't any reports of big damage and, and mercifully no injuries. So, uh, you know, our kind of barrage of small and relatively weak tornadoes seems to be going strong. We've had quite a few of those in the last several years, but 
Fortunately, Jim, fortunately we have not had a major tornado outbreak and uh, we really haven't had a, a tornado rated F, EF3 or higher since, since uh, 2010. The end of two, so August of 2010. So it's been quite, it's quite a, a major tornado drought. Well, that kind of tees up our next point yeah. of discussion here. Uh, something that was observed uh, just this past week, the 50th anniversary of what is called the Northwoods tornado outbreak that took place on the afternoon and evening of August 6th, 1969. Tell us about what happened, Ken. Oh, yeah. Well, so first of all, there's a great write-up that the National Weather Service in Duluth put together. It's a, a real nice summary, including some first-person accounts. But essentially, you know, from, from what we can gather, because we didn't have the kind of spotting and, and radar systems, but if you look at some of the photos, there were a few massive tornadoes that tore through even the north part of what you would consider cabin country. So rather than the, the Brainerd Lakes area, go a little bit north of there, up towards Outing, and up uh, Lake Roosevelt. And then uh, that tornado family, as Dr. Fujita would have called them, uh, kind of tracked over towards two harbors. And there's actually tornado damage in, in two harbors. So there's this inconsistent but long track of damage stretching from uh, really west of that uh, Lake Roosevelt over towards two harbors. And then there was another one even farther to the north. Uh, and a lot of the damage survey, I mean, there were uh, several fatalities with this, and um, this was a multiple killer tornado, in fact, and uh, believe that in one basic cabin complex near outing, uh, seven fatalities occurred right there. So it was a, uh, a deadly tornado, and one of the things that's really stunning is if you look at the photos, um, and I'm sure you've seen those photos, these are very wide tornado tracks where there's just these huge gashes cut through the forest that are over a mile wide, and you can see them continue for miles and miles at length. So it's a, uh, it was an unusual tornado outbreak in that it, it essentially hit the forest areas, and it was unusual for how strong the tornadoes were, especially in forested areas, but but really, we don't see tornadoes of that intensity that frequently in Minnesota. So to have them up in the north central part of the state is uh, a bit unusual. One thing that struck me, taking a look at the track of that storm, and there were two relatively large storm areas, they initiated around the Fargo-Moorhead area and then tracked pretty much to the east uh, toward Duluth and the Arrowhead. And I thought that's an eerily similar path to the storm system that produced the blowdown in 1999. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. It, it is a similar path. And probably atmospherically, the, the ingredients were only slightly different. You know, for storms to track west to east like that, they're probably moving along uh, a warm front. You've got very humid air pooling up, moving up from the south. And then not necessarily cold air on the other side of it, but cooler air. Uh, kind of to the north of that and usually right on top of that you have fairly strong winds aloft and with all the instability coming up from the south and that strong those strong winds aloft producing that wind shear you you can have uh, rotating supercells that produce strong and damaging tornadoes however if the wind environment aloft is just so rather than producing those rotating thunderstorms that that spawn tornadoes, you end up with the kind of bow echo type systems that accelerate eastward and end up 
you know, having uh, straight line winds as their main symptom. And can we assume the warnings back then probably weren't as good as they would be today? Because that is kind of a hole in the radar system, at least as it existed back in 1969, because there was no Duluth radar. I think the two radars that would have been involved would have been the one in Fargo and then the one in Minneapolis. And especially for Minneapolis and for Fargo, once the system moved further to the east, that would be pretty far out of the radar Oh yeah, for really accurate and echoes. On- honestly, even for... A storm in 2019, the western part of that track would be near a radar hole. So we're talking about kind of the Cass, Aiken, Itasca County border for people who don't really know where that is. Just think a little bit south of Grand Rapids, north and northeast of Brainerd, uh, kind of almost right in between them. Uh, there's not great radar coverage. It's sort of on the edge of the Duluth radar. It's too far east to get picked up well by Fargo. Uh, the Fargo Grand Forks radar, and it's uh, it's out of range for the Twin Cities Chanhassen radar. So even now, it's not an area that's well covered. So yeah, you're absolutely right. And we just didn't know uh, about tornadoes the same way then. Uh, there were tornado watches in effect, but uh, you know, tracking the actual storms and knowing what they were doing was just the science hadn't evolved to that point yet. So uh, the, the likelihood that forecasters had great situational awareness on every cell was uh, is low and unlikely. And of course, no NOAA weather radio at the time. Yeah. Uh, imagine people up there at their cabins may not have even been paying attention to the media. There certainly were no uh, smartphones. So yeah. the amount of information the people in harm's way had access to was pretty limited. Right. And, and a lot of the surviving uh, witnesses you know, reported that they, they didn't know about this. They didn't know anything was coming. There was no warning. So that was kind of common at the time, too, even into the 1970s and to a lesser extent into the 80s, that uh, if it wasn't a really well-worn system that had already produced confirmed tornadoes with good communication uh, back to the weather service, then a lot of times uh, people were caught off guard. I mean, even the, the Lake Harriet Harmar tornado was warned after it actually happened initially so well we often talk a lot about the may 6 1965 twin cities tornado outbreak and of course the area was very well warned in that particular situation but again uh, a series of circumstances number one the storms happened in close proximity to a weather bureau the then weather bureau forecast office there was a radar here and radar correct me but i think the conventional radar of that time was most accurate to detect potential rotation in probably a 50 to 75 mile radius from the antenna. But you look at the outbreak we just talked about in 69, or for that matter, the Tracy tornado of June of 1968, far away from radar, no radar in Sioux Falls at the time. Uh, South Dakota's was in Huron. And uh, once again, not a lot of technology that could really see what was happening in those areas. Yeah, I mean, we were kind of on our own at the time. Yeah, it would have been scary because, uh, and and throw in, you know, with the May of 1965 tornadoes, the, the forecasters had a pretty good sense that something was going to happen. Uh, but part of that was also precedent. We already had an established history of tornadoes in the Twin Cities metro area. So there is nothing kind of make you raise an eyebrow and doubt. But... Uh, with the North Woods tornadoes, we're talking about something that really, there wasn't a lot of experience with major tornadoes going through the forest. So you can't blame the forecasters 
for maybe not picking up on that? This may be a, a tough question and maybe there's no answer to it, but you just hit on an interesting point because I was very young at the time, but I remember thinking and hearing other people say, well, wait, tornadoes in northern Minnesota? When does yeah. that ever happen? And I couldn't recall anything, at least in the, the mid-60s, other than that outbreak in 69. But it seems to me um, in the intervening decades, we've seen a lot more severe weather up to the north in cabin country. Yeah. Uh, is that a changing weather pattern? I don't think so, Jim. Okay. I, think, okay. I think that's a changing uh, observation pattern. Okay. And, we, and as you add people to a landscape, you learn more about the weather there. Sure. Right? And, uh, you know, the cabin population, second home populations really exploded in sort of the 70s and right. 80s. And we started seeing things more. And I think now also we have this more sophisticated understanding of, uh, of you know, how storms behave and that really in, in the right environmental conditions, you can, get, you can get tornadic thunderstorms over just about any setting. You could get them in the right conditions. You can get them in Alaska. You can get them in California. You could get them over the forests of northern Minnesota. You could you know, conceivably have them over Lake Superior in the right environmental conditions, and we've had them go up and down mountains in the Teton wilderness. Uh, we should let listeners know that there are airplanes going <laughs> way over our heads. Yes, indeed there are, Kenny, and I, I think uh, MSP just must have changed their uh, active runways because they're... <laughs> Yes. We normally don't have this much noise in this particular location, yeah. uh, but uh, anyway, Kenny. Well, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the week ahead. What does the weather look like for this coming week? Yeah, we're kind of turning back to weather that you like a little bit. Excellent. Uh, you know, we started the month uh, warm, but there's nothing memorable about it, right? And it's been, you know, depending on where you are, either dry or normal for precipitation. Um, not a lot of places getting uh, bombarded by extreme rain yet this August. Then we had a little bit of a cool down. We've had a few cloudy days. Temperatures dropped back a bit. The end of the last week was really nice. And now we're going to resume getting kind of muggy weather and warmer weather. And uh, we'd expect more of the weather that uh, Jim Dubois likes. Uh, <laughs> you know, and as we look at the one to two weeks ahead, a lot of opportunities for... Uh, you know, getting getting outside and sweating. So you're saying, Kenny, most likely the state fair might be a little uh, sweaty. Yeah, so that's a, kind of at the edge of how far we can see right now. But there are some indications that the, uh, you know, as we turn into the, the 20s of August, that we're going to be pretty warm and humid. And that, that could, of course, mean that you end up with rain, heavy rain and thunderstorms keeping the temperatures down but you have this juiced up air mass and somewhere in the region it's going to be hot and humid um, looks like a very strong kind of uh, heat dome or ridge that's going to build over the northern high plains just to our west and so if any of that heat gets into minnesota we'll see some 90s especially out west and they could they could seep into the eastern parts of the state but more likely i'd say you know, we're just going to, we're probably got a good run of mid and upper 80s coming. Um, maybe not this week so much. It's kind of a transition week. We've got a, a, a few disturbances coming through, especially uh, Monday and Tuesday. But uh, but as we get into the next weekend and beyond, it looks like we're going we're gonna to get kind of toasty. All right. Well, let's uh, change to a very serious note. This past week, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as the IPCC, 
came out with a report that said agriculture really needs to change throughout the world, particularly the way uh, food is grown and produced, how we as humans consume it. And um, it seems that uh, agriculture and other human activities are threatening the world's ability to limit the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which was the goal of the 2015 uh, Paris Climate Agreement. Right. Yeah. So there's actually a lot to talk about with this report, and we probably could dedicate an entire show just to that. I guess the highlights or lowlights are, you know, so we talk about this goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, and that's a global temperature goal. But over land, one of the points that they make is over land, this has already happened. You know, land, you could think of this, uh, you know, on on a good hot day, if you go to a beach, which is going to be warmer, the sand or the water? On a good hot day, it will be the sand yeah. during the day. Yeah, during the day. Yes. And so the, the land changes temperature and reacts to a, an input of heat faster than water. This is why, you know, in, in the um, spring, even when it's really hot, if you jump into a lake, you might get hypothermia. Whereas, uh, and then in the fall... Uh, on a nice mild day, you still might be able to swim, even if, you know, you'd think you'd think that the water would have cooled down by then, but it, it, there's a lag that's kind of built in. That there's just more specific heat, we call it, in water, so it takes longer for it to change temperature. So it shouldn't surprise us that land has warmed up faster than the oceans. So when we talk about 1.5 degrees of warming, that's a global temperature, but over land, if you just subtract the oceans from it, land has already warmed up by that much. And now if you think of what that means, we live on the land. We don't live on the water. We use the land. And the, the kind of point of the report is that we're using so much land already. We are so sensitive to what happens on the land. And it's the land where the climate is actually changing the fastest. And that's going to determine what can grow and how. And of course, then you throw in the fact that, you know, agriculture is what you would think of as carbon intensive, right? It, it, it releases through its processes a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, and especially when you talk about the production of, of meat. So the report, in a way, just says things that environmental activists and people kind of who really follow closely with environmental news have been saying for years, if not decades, that we, we actually need to be quote sustainable we would require a you know a change in lifestyle and jim we could we could get deep here yes it's not a fun topic for most people to entertain because that lifestyle change i mean what you talked about is exactly right and most of us you know I mean, we all probably know vegetarians and and they've been in, in many ways sort of carrying the mantle for for a while but most of us are omnivores, right. and uh, and you know, in many American homes, having meat at every meal is sort of a foregone conclusion. And what the report is saying is, if you guys want to make it, if we want to make it, and sort of, you know, not have the climate uh, completely change the environment to a level that we can't withstand, then we probably need to change that foregone conclusion and really reduce the amount of meat-based food that we eat and increase the amount of plant-based food. And of course, this all needs to probably be grown a bit differently too. And I I would defer to some of the agricultural experts on exactly how we're going to get there. But, uh, you know, 
I think there's another piece of this, Jim, that some people will read the report and embrace it and say, well, I told you so. And there's this part of me that wonders, is it, is it just going to be, is it just going to make us more divided on this issue? Or are we going to find a way to come to some agreement that, yeah, we, we actually do need to make some changes and we kind of need to change the standards of what we consider to be normal right now. Right. That, that's, a, that's, I think, going to be a tough conversation. But as the report points out, this is not crack pottery. This, right. is, uh, this is real science. And, uh, you know, for anyone who thinks that the scientists have an agenda, you know, what on earth could that possibly right. be? There is right. no horse lobby. Telling people, yeah, you know, exactly. that's you know, <laughs> paying climatologists to, to force us back to horses and right. wagons. There's right. no, there's not been any real push from anyone to say, you know, to have climatologists and climate scientists say, well, we, we need a change in lifestyle. There's there's no incentive, but right. um, it's just based on the science, which is, you know, part of the globe has already warmed up very quickly. By the way, Minnesota has already re- reached its 1.5. We're already there. So uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming has already occurred in Minnesota. And if you go up into the Arctic and into Canada, it's already occurred there. It's just that when you average all of the land, it comes to about that amount. It's been a little bit slower in most of the tropical areas and near the coasts and a little bit higher in the middle of continents and at higher latitudes. We'll certainly revisit this topic again in a future episode. A lot to talk about. But, uh, Kenny, in the time remaining, kind of a quick summary of what we can expect in the week ahead and maybe kind of tee it up through the end of August if you feel comfortable doing so. Yeah, I don't feel comfortable (laughs) doing that because I have no idea what the end of August is going to do. Just kidding. kidding. Yeah, no, it's fine. um, So it looks like we've got you know, a more active week shaping up. It looks like over the next two weeks, there are going to be parts of Minnesota that receive, you know, several inches of rain. I don't know how widespread that will be, but it looks like we're moving into a a more active, warmer, and more humid period. This will be kind of the transition week, and then the the following week. So beginning on, what would that be, I guess, the 19th or so. Uh, then we'll, I think it looks like the heat will really start kicking up there. And of course, when it's summer and you start adding heat and humidity into the mix, then you got to talk about heavy thunderstorms and potential flooding. And, you know, we haven't, even though it's sort of dried out, it hasn't really dried out. I mean, we, we remain really wet. The ground's wet. The fields are for the most part wet. And, uh, and so the idea of returning to a wet pattern is kind of like, ah. Again? <laughs> so I'm sure the farmers aren't delighted to hear that. Yeah, it does seem like the uh, the wetness has been rather relentless for the last several months here in Minnesota. Yes, indeed. So, so yeah, I'd say uh, transition week with some activity, thunderstorms Monday. Tuesday could be some kind of strong thunderstorms okay. in the southeastern quarter or so of Minnesota. Possible heavy rain, but then we start to, you know, we get a couple cool days in the middle of the week, and then we turn the corner and move towards... Uh, warm and humid conditions by next weekend and the following week. All right. Well, this is way over our heads. It's a weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois, Kenny Blumenfeld's climatologist. If you have a question for us or would like to hear us talk about something on the podcast, uh, you can certainly visit our website, wayoverourheads.com, or like us on Facebook. And Kenny, as always, great talking to you. And uh, we'll check in with you again next weekend. Good talking to you too, Jim. You have a good week.